coming today to our second of, of the three safety leadership series that the Herbert Smithbury Hills safety team runs uh, each year. I am Nerida Jessup, a special counsel based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my colleagues Steve Bell uh, down in his home office in Melbourne, Aaron Anderson in Perth, uh, in, in Brisbane, and Anna Cregan in Perth. Before I begin today, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that I'm living and working on in Sydney, located on Gadigal country. I recognise the Gadigal people's continued to connection to culture and country, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. On behalf of my colleagues, I would also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands where they are working today, Wajak country, Yagara country and Wurundjeri country. So we have decided to run today's session as a bit of a, a year in review, and perhaps uh, this might be something that we would typically reserve for the last of our three safety leadership series, but uh, perhaps optimistically, we've decided to, uh, to move that a little bit earlier and call time on 2020. So we've got about 40 minutes or so where each of us will be discussing some of the key developments in 2020, um, and many of those are issues that we could not have predicted 12 months ago. So Steve Bell will start us off with an update on industrial manslaughter laws, inclu including um, the WHS bill, which has just passed WA's upper house in the last few days and, and will shortly become law. Um, and then, because it's impossible to talk about 2020 without talking about COVID, uh, Aaron will be discussing getting back into the office and Anna Cregan will be talking about what we expect will be a really enduring change, uh, the, the rise of work from home from a WHS perspective. I will be talking about something that we've been talking about for a lot longer, and that is the continuing uh, WHS regulatory project of, of how lawmakers and how regulators are responding to the increasing concerns about mental health uh, management in the workplace. Uh, and uh, then we'll be leaving some time at the end. Uh, we'll, we've, we've got about 10 minutes reserved for questions. Um, so please feel free to ask questions as we move through the session. Uh, and some of the presenters may pick that up as we go on as well. Um, we're really looking forward to that uh, and, and thank you for joining us. So I will pass to Steve Bell. Cool, thank you so much, Nerida. Uh, afternoon all, I'm speaking to you from Melbourne, from the newly liberated People's Republic of Melbourne, where all is forgiven, uh, we're all back on the side of the government, uh, and thankfully we've had a couple of days of no new COVID cases, which is very exciting. And so hopefully that means for our clients at least, a bit of a vision of, of getting back to something like normal over the coming couple of months. You know, construction can, can recommence in Melbourne, Back at 100% uh, loadings on sites, manufacturing uh, has been given the green light from from midnight tonight to to recommence. So it's been a you know it's been a big and dare I say it maybe a little emotional week for the um for the the, the Melbourne uh, business community and the you know social community too. Um, thanks, Nerida, for that introduction. I, I just wanted to give just a, a 10 minute update on uh, my sense of of what's been happening with workplace manslaughter or industrial manslaughter variously. We might move to the next slide if we can. Um, this has been the topic du jour for, uh, I know the four of us dealing with our clients and dealing with their boards over the last um, 12 months. We're, we're in a state of uh, movement, but soon to be in a state of settlement on this issue of workplace manslaughter across most of the Australian jurisdictions. Um, now it is right over the uh, coming, uh, weeks and then probably embedded over the coming months, we will have a new WHS bill over in Western Australia. It would be a shame because I've looked forward to reminding myself of calling it OSH uh, every time because they, they had their own language, but we'll be moving to everybody except Victoria having uh, WHS legislation and it's felt a bit like Victoria's had an exceptional uh, year in any event. Uh, of interest, that, that bill when it was introduced had a kind of a a bifurcated uh, manslaughter offence, an offence of what they call simple manslaughter, which is just not a phrase you would hear down the pub, uh, and then uh, what we might call ordinary criminal manslaughter. That idea of simple manslaughter was baffling, frankly, to those who, who read that bill when it came out, uh, and it has 
you know, through the parliamentary process been uh, withdrawn. And so when the WHS law comes into effect in WA, we will have something akin to uh, the, the, the broad uh, manslaughter offences that exist in all the other jurisdictions. In Victoria, midway through the year, we, we commenced uh, our workplace manslaughter regime. Um, in Victoria, perhaps a little distinct from other jurisdictions, it was made expressly clear that you could only be guilty of a workplace manslaughter offence if you breached an existing duty under the work health, under the Occupational Health and Safety Act down here. That is, the, 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 the regime was in essence a penalty regime, uh, more than it was uh, creating a new legal duty. And they sort of went out of their way in the Victorian law to say that you could only breach that law if you owed an existing duty under the IHS Act, breached it, that breach caused the death, and the circumstances were circumstances of, in essence, uh, criminal negligence. Uh, the, the sort of legal tests that you apply for culpable driving uh, here, here in Victoria has been imported into the IHS Act. That law's uh, kicked off uh, and has been in effect now for you know, the last four months or so. It's led, of course, to you know, um, vociferous debate as to whether government agencies or their contractors ought to be prosecuted with manslaughter offences for COVID-related uh, deaths. Um, that's a live issue and remains, as I understand it, being investigated by the regulator down here. It seems improbable that the first prosecution under these new laws will be in those very dramatic, unusual circumstances, uh, but it remains a possibility. As we understand it, there have been applications made under our OHS Act for uh, what is known as a Section 131 or a, a sort of a, a citizen's right to query the regulator as to whether a prosecution will or ought to have been brought. And the consequence of that is that it ultimately is a matter which gets referred to the Director of Public Prosecutions, who is our prosecuting agency for, for um, manslaughter provisions here in Victoria. There's a bit of a watch and see with all of that. We should never forget a couple of things are critical here. There's a two-year period to investigate and potentially longer if needed. And also that, that if actions were taken which failed to meet community standards before the commencement of the workplace manslaughter provisions, that's irrelevant. Uh, only the conduct that occurred over after the 1st of July could be possibly considered relevant. But nevertheless, that's a, that's a matter that, that you know, the pundits have certainly been talking about down here. Of interest, though, I suppose we, we have to calibrate, you know, how, how, how many manslaughter prosecutions do we think will be brought uh, in Victoria? We, we had a fatality in uh, 2017, so pre-regime uh, fatality here in Victoria that was prosecuted recently uh, down in um, one of the regions for, you know, the arch-typical uh, director who permitted a young worker to drive with brakes that were faulty on a truck and brakes failed and the truck rolled over and the, and the kid died. That is, you know, the, the arch typically worst example of corporate behaviour and, and director accountability, as you can imagine. And yet, those offences were not prosecuted under the reckless endangerment, which was kind of the precursor to, to manslaughter. They were prosecuted as what I might call ordinary health and safety offences. And of interest, they were dealt with in the, in the magistrate's court, they were dealt with in the lower courts, treated as summary offences, notwithstanding that the um, maximum penalty allowable in the magistrate's court, which is about a quarter of the maximum was applied. So I suppose that's an interesting observation, just, just, just that we, we all are speaking of manslaughter and we imagine that very serious offences were prosecuted as workplace manslaughter offences. But in fact, even in pretty poor circumstances of, of culpability, you know, high culpability of directors, um, we've not been using the full arsenal of the power under the IHS Act in Victoria, and nor have the courts necessarily considered uh, those offences as, as egregious as we might otherwise. And so there's a bit to play out, I think, in terms of how manslaughter interacts with the way in which the courts view the seriousness of offences. If we just pop to the next slide, uh, I suppose uh, in all of this, the, um, if we just move a, move a slide forward, the uh, Queensland experience has perhaps shown us what is likely in the, in the workplace manslaughter jurisdictions going forward. We spoke when we all caught up a few months ago, or as I refer to it, many years ago, um, uh, in, I think March, when we spoke about workplace manslaughter, and Aaron took you through the prosecution for Brisbane auto recycling. We made the point that that was a prosecution of manslaughter, but again, in, in pretty egregious circumstances, only the company was prosecuted with a manslaughter offence. The individuals prosecuted with something quite different. We've had another prosecution in Queensland since then under workplace manslaughter laws by their new specialist prosecutor, 
a small business owner prosecuted with a, a death arising from a forklift overturning whilst unloading from a truck, and both uh, the individual and the company prosecuted with manslaughter this time. So, in fact, for all we've spoken about, about people going to jail and, and the consequence of manslaughter, this, this, in fact, will be the first case that really tests the human impact that that is what an individual might be sentenced with in Queensland. Something else, and just pop to the next slide, uh, obviously it was of relevance when we talk about fatalities, uh, which was the prosecution of ardent leisure in relation to those four fatalities that arose uh, in the you know, much publicised and tragic incident at Dreamworld. The coronial inquiry leading into that uh, prosecution made it really clear that the coroner formed a view that the board of that organisation, they said, were careless in respect of safety. That, that was the coronial finding. And yet, uh, perhaps to the surprise of some, that there were no director or individual prosecutions uh, and instead a prosecution of the company alone on a number of counts that were limited enough that the penalty was, uh, you know, what was seen as an insufficient fine of 3.6 million. A couple of lessons from that. Again, I think community expectation of director prosecutions and, and even a director's perceived risk of prosecution for manslaughter is, is perhaps at odds with the way in which regulators are pursuing these matters. Noting, of course, manslaughter wasn't available here, but, but certainly director prosecutions, like we saw in the earlier Queensland case, could have been available. And that the sentencing regime still seems out of whack with community expectation. Um, now, reasonable minds will differ on all of that, but it's certainly the case that, on the one hand, you can see the merit of Worst case scenarios having an increased penalty regime. That was the whole reason for um, the manslaughter offences being introduced at all. Higher fines, and, and, and the response to this demonstrates, you know, the community need for that. But a great deal hinges, and I suppose as we look forward to 2020, a great deal hinges on what regulators are willing to prosecute and, and, and specialist prosecutors like we have in Queensland, and how the courts respond to those. Uh, circumstances brought before them and the seriousness with which they treat those offences. And, and I think an observation from me is there still seems to be a mismatch between those between those two ideas. Just on the last slide, if I could, um, I, I, I've included here, and these slides will be available. If you send us an email after this session, we're, we're happy to make these slides and, and this webcast available. In terms of the advice we've given our clients faced with these new manslaughter laws in, in really short compass, We've said, you might as well use this as an opportunity. You, you, you might as well. Uh, if, if your board or your executive team are concerned about workplace manslaughter, you might as well use that as an opportunity to have a discussion with them about fatal and catastrophic risk in your organisation. What are the things which, if they go wrong, could cause a fatality? Are we really clear that we've got the best available suite of risk controls to address it? Are we clear we've engaged in a consultation process with workers and those who, whose business are affected by ours to make sure we're coordinating those matters properly? Are we putting our money where our mouth is? Are we, are we putting our resources in the higher consequence risks? And are we really thoughtfully thinking through the governance arrangements? Can we, can we meaningfully demonstrate how the board relied on the executive management team and how the executive management team undertook its functions appropriately? So our advice to clients in conversations that I know the four of us have had uh, uh, many, many times uh, over the last 12 months, it really boiled down to this. You, you might as well, if there's an increased regulatory focus on a new area, and that area is fatalities, there's absolutely every reason to use that as an opportunity as health and safety professionals on the call to refocus your business on those things that, on those things that matter. So Nerida, that's my uh, thoughts on, on where we've gone this year with uh, with fatal risk and the manslaughter offences. Thanks, Steve. Um, I will hand over now to move to the next slide. Um, and we'll be talking about, uh, you know, one of the biggest changes of the year, and that is where uh, at least half of the people on this call are working, working from home and how we manage that from a WHS perspective. That's right, and thank you, Nerida. Uh, it goes without saying that one of the biggest safety issues this year has been the advent of COVID. We were discussing before this call that if we were to have set out what we thought would be the 
the key changes in safety this year, none of us would have predicted COVID as, as being among in the list or as having the impacts it has had. But interestingly, from, a, from an Australian perspective, COVID has presented safety issues, not so much concerned with the management of COVID risks in the workplace, although they have obviously been front and centre and part of the issues that need to be managed, but importantly also uh, safety risks connected with new ways of working, which have come out of our risk management strategy in terms of managing COVID more generally. So one of the key changes that most employers have made in following COVID where they've been able to do so has been to have vast tracts of the work, workforce working from home. And that brings with it new hazards, new risks and new ways of managing those from a safety perspective. And even as restrictions ease, it's clear that uh, there's anecdotal feedback from employees that many of them prefer work from home arrangements, at least to some extent, that there are some benefits associated with work from home arrangements in terms of productivity, yeah, positive impacts on mental health, positive impacts on physical health to some extent. So it seems as a result of that, that most employers are looking at maintaining work from home arrangements to the extent that they can, at least to some extent in the workplace. And what that leaves us with are um, issues for employers around safety matters coming out of work from home arrangements and how they should be managed. There's a lot of guidance on this and you've probably all delved into it, at least in some way. Um, Safe Work Australia has been particularly prolific in its, um, in its guidance on managing mental health risks associated with work from home arrangements. Um, but when we look at the issues from a safety perspective that come out of work from home arrangements, they really break down into a few neat categories. The first is um, mental health hazards and risks. Um, very clearly, uh, work from home arrangements do present a new arrangement for each individual. And there has been a lot of feedback that they have had impacts, on, that those arrangements have had impacts on mental health. Um, the sorts of impacts um, or the sorts of matters that have led to impacts on mental health connected with work from home arrangements have included matters like being isolated from managers, colleagues and support networks, poor communication, poor workplace relationships, low reward and recognition, um, low, a low sense of control over the job, a lack of clarity about, about the role and what's required of individuals, and high or, interestingly, low workloads have all been attributed to um, adverse mental health impacts. Um, so in a work from home arrangement, you can see that there's a, there are a range of risks, um, a range of hazards which present risks which need to be managed. There are also obviously physical safety risks, um, those connected with office equipment, having different office equipment, with having employees manage their own office setup, at least to some extent with um, employees managing their own working hours and with a lack of clarity around what their actual working hours might be. Um, physical risk connected with um, potential inactivity, particularly where employees' movements outside the house are limited. And also, obviously, the physical consequences of mental health hazards. And that's teamed with the difficulties that work from home arrangements present around supervising staff, controlling working hours and controlling matters like activity levels. So what does all of this require and how do employers go about managing these risks um, in a context where work from home is likely to continue, at least in some form? On the next slide, you'll see that uh, what is proposed here, at the, the conventional safety um, thinking around how to manage work from safety risks connected with work from home is to apply the conventional safety um, assessment of identifying hazards, assessing the risks that arise from those hazards, consulting um, with the workforce, which is required in harmonised jurisdictions and also to an extent in Western Australia and I understand Victoria, then implementing controls um, to manage those risks and on an ongoing basis reviewing those controls. And this process will require some steps, we would say, that employers may not currently be taking. Identifying hazards is a big one. It will, to do that properly, employers need to have some knowledge and some understanding of what mental health hazards are. 
um, what creates a hazard to mental health to, to be able to properly identify and act on those hazards to make sure they're adequately controlled. And that will require employers to inform themselves of mental health issues, um, to in some cases engage with workers or in most cases we would say engage with workers and any other um, relevant bodies to get a sense of what issues are presenting in the workplace, requiring employees to self-report risks, reviewing any reports that come through that, that do report hazards or that do report health or safety issues connected with work from home arrangements, so incident reports, the workers' compensation claims and similar, and also having regular check-ins one-on-one with employees um, or in some cases using broader surveys and similar assessments of workplace health and safety to make sure that employers properly understand what those hazards are. And then throughout the, um, the process, while it being a process which is familiar to most businesses, is one which will need to be informed by that new range of, of hazards and risks which are connected with it. So all of this um, leads us to the key points for businesses in managing uh, work from home arrangements. As Nerida said, this is an ongoing proposition. It seems almost certain that most employers will maintain some level of work from home arrangements for quite some time into the future. On the next slide, we've set out what we consider to be the key points for employers in managing these issues going forward. And they are essentially, and you'll see, um, they are essentially to apply that process but to make sure that it's done and that it's refreshed on an ongoing basis. So first of all, acknowledging that this is an issue, it needs to be managed, it needs to form part of employers' general processes for managing health and safety risks, just as employers manage um, clear physical risk to health and safety connected with work at sites or in offices, and also an acknowledgement that the hazards presented by work from home arrangements might change over time and must be monitored and understood on an ongoing basis. Similarly, the, the risks connected with those hazards must cha may change and must be monitored. Consultation with the workforce about how best to manage um, and reduce those risks um, must be ongoing. And control measures should be reviewed on an ongoing basis also to assess their effectiveness and to assess whether they do in fact manage risks to the standard required, which is as low as reasonably practicable. So there are key thoughts on risks associated with working from home. Um, what we're now seeing now is a return of, of many workforces, and including in most, most recently in Victoria, to the office. And Aaron will speak with you now about how that process might be managed and what to look out for in doing so. Yeah, thanks very much. Um, Anna, picking up on your um, starting point, who would have thought looking at a year in review we are sitting here talking about the challenges associated with actually going back to the office. Absolutely extraordinary. Yeah, um, it's an important one though, and it's an important one for a number of reasons. Um, first of all, I think the overarching experience we've seen across the country and the second wave in Victoria, uh, the um, workplace and employers have a really important role to play in managing public safety risks associated with COVID-19. So put aside duties, there's this whole issue of public safety uh, and employers, you know, have, um, you know, sort of an element of control in being able to sort of consult with its workforce and other stakeholders um, and seek to put in place, you know, sort of measures that try and sort of manage those sorts of broader risks. But sort of importantly, and this is a sort of a, a legal seminar, uh, what's become very clear is that um, employers have legal duties. So we've got safety regimes across the country, um, which are sort of largely the same. As Steve pointed out, Vic Victoria has got uh, some different language. But the legislation is pretty clear that when it um, deals with duties, those duties apply in relation to the management of COVID-19. And it's a little bit unique. It's a, it's a, it's a particular issue where the particular hazard doesn't arise from what we do at work. <clears throat> okay, so what is the nature of what we're trying to achieve when we're looking at discharging legal duties? What we're trying to achieve um, from a big picture perspective, and if we're thinking about returning people to the office, is this. <clears throat> First of all, um, we've got to try and put in place reasonably practicable measures, <clears throat> all right, 
that will try and prevent COVID-19 entering the workplace. <clears throat> so that's the starting point. So what is it that we can do um, from an employer's perspective or duty holder's perspective to say, we're going to put some measures in place so we're going to try and prevent COVID-19 coming to work? Uh, and an obvious one is, you know, what people have done, that is if you've got a sniffle or if you've got an indicator that you might have COVID-19, you simply don't turn up to work. Um, unlike the old days when, you know, turning up to work with a sniffle was a brave thing to do and almost in some organisations expected. Um, now it's totally the opposite. <clears throat> uh, and it's, um, in, you know, in my view, an entirely sensible uh, sort of requirement to put in place uh, to prevent COVID-19 entering the workplace. But it's not, it doesn't stop there when it comes to legal duties. I think the reasonably practicable standard also places obligations on employers to put in place measures to ensure that there's sort of uh, prevention of the spread of COVID-19 in the workplace as well. So what can you do at a workplace to prevent COVID-19 spreading if in fact it does get past the initial barrier and the controls we put in place there. So I think from a, a legal duties perspective um, and thinking about controls and risk management, if you think about those two limbs, that's what we're sort of trying to achieve. <clears throat> so let's sort of look at some of the things, and I've only got a short time, but I'll touch on some of the things I think might be important. So if you maybe go to the next slide, please. Um, you've probably, or most of you on the call, at least all of the safety professionals will have seen that I think it was around the 20th of September, um, the Attorney General's Office issued a draft code of practice for the management of COVID-19. There's a lot of guidance material uh, that's been published over the period of time that uh, we've had to deal with COVID-19. Um, I think in some senses overwhelming for employers when you look at uh, the vast amount of information now that's um, published on various regulators' websites. Um, published by public health authorities, um, um, given at a federal level. Um, and then, um, you know, across the country, when you look at what has happened, there's been divergence of approaches um, for, you know, necessary reasons, um, including, for example, looking at Victoria. Um, and if you pick out the issue of use of masks, for example, um, that particular control and the necessity for it. Um, but the code of practice, I think uh, the draft that's been released, um, I've had a look at it in some detail. It's a really useful document. Like a lot of codes, um, providing guidance at a reasonably high level. Um, but there's a really particularly important starting point that I think you don't often see in a code of practice under safety legislation uh, that is made very clear in this COVID-19 code of practice, everybody. And that is it's, it's really, really clear uh, that the starting point is keep abreast of what our public health authorities are saying, and that is what takes priority. <clears throat> so I fear, and I'll get to some examples in a minute, but what I fear about all of this, and particularly for us who have been lucky enough to get back to the office a lot earlier than others in Queensland, um, and Anna, you sitting over there in Western Australia, um, my fear is this issue, whole issue around complacency. We were really rigid at, at, at monitoring what information was coming out. In the early days, it was rapid. Uh, and uh, we did a lot of work in the office here helping clients work through this. Um, but it's really important. The starting point is what are the public health authorities saying? I think there's going to be more of a focus, as we've seen, I think, in Victoria and other areas on localised community issues. So there should be. Uh, and managing the issue at a local level. So getting down to the granular level of what are they saying? Am I in local communities that are at a particular risk and what do I need to do? Escalate, de-escalation and increasing escalation in your, your, your safety management processes um, from a workplace perspective will be important in that regard. So that, that takes priority. <clears throat> but the um, code of practice has a number of elements in it that provides some practical guidance on the types of controls that employers should think about. Um, they're all pretty basic when you read them and you look at them. And the experience I've had in Queensland here is that it's all sort of, in a sense, if you didn't have a code or didn't have the guidance, what would sort of, in essence, common sense tell you what to do? Um, it's all consistent with that, in my view. But, you know, sort of there's there's clear guidance in the code on things around signage and, and cleaning and social distancing. Um, but I'll touch on a couple of points um, that people have grappled with over the time. I mentioned masks um, and the code touches on masks, uh, doesn't make any recommendations in relation to the use of masks. It's an issue for employers to risk assess, um, but certainly says that um, from an Australian government, uh, you know, health perspective, masks aren't generally necessary. 
Uh, and the code of practice makes the suggestion that um, employers should, um, you know, keep a track of what the public health authorities are saying in jurisdictions whether there's a specific need for it. Um, then that might mean adoption at the workplace is, is necessary to achieve discharge of legal duties. The other thing is temperature checks. Um, I don't know what everyone's experience out there is in, um, in cyber world listening to this, uh, but I've certainly been to many workplaces now where the mandatory requirement to get in is um, the, the, the gun to the head, that's the temperature checking gun, and um, you know you sign off on the check sheet where you record your temperature and certify that you're a particular uh, temperature below the 37.5 or whatever the threshold is. The code actually talks about temperature checking specifically and sort of makes an observation that really it's not uh, a reasonably practicable control. So it's not, not, I'm not suggesting that if you as an employer don't want to do it, you don't. Um, but I think people maybe need to take the opportunity to reassess whether in fact that's something that needs to be done um, because there are a vast array of other sorts of controls in managing those two elements, entry to the workplace, okay, and then and then um, um, at the workplace um, that people can, can think about. So um, I encourage you to have a look at the code and I encourage you to sort of um, pick up on the themes of the code in terms of the types of controls that people are putting in place. Uh, and ultimately, of course, as everyone knows on, on this webinar, um, it's, it's your duty. Um, you must discharge it to the relevant standard of what's reasonably practicable and be able to demonstrate that. Um, and certainly reliance on, on codes is something that means that you'll be in a defensible position uh, to be able to say to regulators um, or courts that um, you've done the right thing. So um, that's the, the code of practice. Um, I think a special call out needs to be made when it comes to returning to the workplace uh, to just make sure we don't lose sight of the issue of vulnerable workers. Um, it popped up really early in the piece, uh, you know, in those essential services um, who are allowed to continue to operate and what do we do with our vulnerable workers? And when I talk about vulnerable workers, everybody, they're the categories that were released by the committee, that's the um, Australian Public Health Committee that, uh, that has advised the Australian government on COVID issues um, and also advises on other issues, uh, but developed categories of particular people in the community who are at risk or at higher risk um, should they contract COVID-19. Um, and that risk uh, has been identified even as a significantly increased risk of, of death, for example. Um, so uh, in allowing people to return back to the office and in carrying out your risk assessments, I think it's important to be able to uh, think about how your vulnerable workforce fits into this. Um, and um, I think that leads into, in terms of the slides, um, the second point that I want to talk about briefly, and that's compliance with um, consultation duties. Um, the vulnerable workforce is a particular cohort within um, your workplace, who I think consultation is particularly important uh, to ensure that you understand um, people's concerns um, around their own vulnerabilities um, and be able to uh, sort of to the extent that it's reasonably practicable, um, address those concerns through control measures at the workplace. The, the code of practice deals with this. The code of practice talks about things like, you know, extending working from home arrangements or putting in place, um, uh, you know, sort of physical barriers, other isolation points in the workplace for vulnerable workers. But it's certainly something that I feel is important that we don't lose sight of because, let's face it, we're still dealing with COVID-19. Uh, as, a, as an issue, um, you know, despite the fact we're doing well with numbers. Um, and, uh, you know, I can't, I can't imagine how one would feel if, uh, you know, a vulnerable worker sort of contracted COVID-19 at a, at a workplace and um, suffered the severe effects of it. So, so please don't lose sight of that. And I think, as I said, uh, there are consultation duties, as we all know, under WHS regimes, those duties generally have two limbs, talking to our workforce, talking to other duty holders, and so when we're talking about what we're doing as employers to discharge our responsibilities, <clears throat> I strongly encourage you to be making sure that you get feedback from your employees um, and uh, you see whether in fact from your employee cohort, whether these controls are working for you and um, adjust as necessary. And also, um, as I said, um, you know, the second limb of it, you know, consulting with other, other duty holders um, is something that you'll need to do. Um, but also is something that's quite important. I think um, something that popped up on my radar the other day was uh, the issue of, um, you know, you're doing your annual fire evac training. You know, once upon a time, we'd all try and predict when it would occur and jump down the lift 10 minutes before the siren went off and we'd be having coffees whilst you're watching everyone walk out the building. I'm 
say that facetiously. But look, um, uh, now the requirement that's come across my desk is you um, log in and you complete a virtual evacuation for the building. Now, the question is, is that okay? Certainly okay from a social distancing perspective, got it. Uh, is that okay in the event that there is a fire? So if your building manager, for example, says, this is what we're gonna do, it's now a virtual fire evac, uh, do we as an employer, as a tenant um, in a building, do we need to do more? Do we need to do we need to say, all right, well, we probably should make sure that people don't sit there and um, play the 10-minute virtual online video um, whilst they're um, sort of cooking dinner and um, haven't really watched it? <clears throat> Who would do that? Um, but you know, so do we need to do more? Do we need to do we need to have more specific consultation through leaders and managers in the workplace when they're having their meetings and other? other discussions with employees, and this is coming back to the consultation bit about, hey guys, let's not forget, it's yes, it was a bit different this year, we didn't have to walk down the stairs, but this is what it's all about. So these are the, these are the challenges, I think, that um, are presenting themselves in the current environment. Um, <clears throat> the um, next point I wanted to raise is around clearly documented expectations and procedures. It goes without saying it's a bit trite. You need something in writing, in my view, that should be very clearly setting out what your expectations are in terms of what employees should do, and that should be monitored and enforced. And I think that comes to the point that I started with around complacency. I did a little bit of a survey with a few people um, just prior to this webinar about how's it all going with your controls. Uh, a couple of things that came back to me were um, the use of our sanitizers has significantly dropped. <clears throat> Um, I saw four of our employees sitting in, uh, you know, close proximity, having a natter and a laugh about the weekend the other day, no social distancing. When the issue was raised with the employees, their response was, oh, I didn't think any of that applied anymore. And what about the issue of handshakes? <clears throat> Give us a virtual hands up if you've shaken someone's hand uh, since COVID-19 in contradiction to an employer direction or policy or procedure. Um, for fear of self-incrimination, I'm not going to move. But um, the it's a real issue. Lots of employers, and if you look at the code of practice, it talks about the issue of preventing handshakes in the workplace. It's clearly a physical connection that can cause the transmission of COVID-19 at the workplace. But how many people are actually doing it? I've certainly myself felt under pressure where clients come in and they put their hand out immediately for the handshake. So again, if that's a rule, how, how do we go about managing it? How do we go about enforcing it? Um, and are there other ways, um, for example, if someone does shake a hand, if there's a, if, if, if someone feels that's what they want to do, then maybe, you know, there needs to be um, you know, sanitizer immediately available. Um, some other things just to finish off, um, so I can hand over um, to Nerida. Uh, we need to manage issues around travel fears. I think that's real. Um, there'll be employment considerations that will interact with safety. Can we direct people to come back to the office if they have fear of catching the bus to work? So you're going to have to get, you know, think about these issues really clearly. Is it a reasonable and lawful direction in a situation where someone particularly, say, might be a vulnerable worker and says, I'm just not going to do it. So these are going to be challenges in the return to work environment um, that's going to be ahead. And, and, and as I said, regulatory compliance issues will pop up. We've seen lots of regulatory compliance issues over the last six months or so. The issue around the fire evac one that popped up the other day in my head is a, is a regulatory requirement to have fire evacuation. Uh, how are we meeting specific regulatory requirements um, in the return to work environment where we've got COVID specific controls? So look, um, avoid complacency um, is really important, please. Um, and let's plan for the new normal. I think um, to leave a takeaway message even beyond COVID-19 is the expectation of courts and regulators going to be that these some of these controls preventing you know um, um, flus and coughs and colds transmitted in the workplace good things to make sure that maybe people aren't getting man flu each year and I must admit I avoided it this year which was lovely so I'll finish on that note and I'll hand over to you Nera thanks thank you Aaron that was really uh, really interesting uh, and really informative I uh, can we move to the next slide please I will keep this as as short as I can, because we've actually had quite a few questions come through, which I think would be worth getting to. Uh, but I wanted to talk today about the kind of continuing WHS regulatory project, which is how do WHS laws and WH regulators respond to the increasing issue of uh, poorer mental health outcomes at work uh, and what... Uh, 
what are we expecting to see in this space and what have we seen really over the last 12 months? Um, for some context, in 2019, the Boland Review, one of the key recommendations in that review uh, was that there was this view that WHS laws were inadequate in regulating and protecting psychosocial health and wellbeing. Uh, the Boland Review largely said, well, this is, this is because of a lack of prescriptive and explicit focus on psychosocial hazards in WHS laws, regulations and codes of practice. Uh, and that report called for, at the time, urgent prescriptive regulations to be developed and introduced across the jurisdictions. Uh, we saw it at, at the time, very, very close to that time, Safe Work Australia, the national uh, policy body for the model WHS states, uh, developed a, a pretty useful guideline, uh, frankly, which is still very much a leading guidance in this area, which uh, outlined a lot of the uh, the uh, hazard and risks to psychosocial health, which, which Anna has gone over in the COVID context, and control measures that were available. There was, of course, in that guideline, a bit of tension between what employers had to do under WHS laws. Uh, when looking at physical risk, your obligation is to uh, protect against harm from work. Uh, but there was some suggestion in that guideline that employers were expected to do more to go further than, than uh, how we have traditionally understood WHS obligations to operate. Uh, since that time, in the middle of this year, interestingly, the Australian Human Rights Commission published its report on sexual harassment, uh, which was focused on a range of issues. It wasn't focused on WHS regulations, but a couple of the recommendations from that report went to how WHS regulators were regulating the issue of sexual harassment. Um, now, that report cited basically uh, a bit of a complaint from, from the Commission that WHS regulators across the jurisdictions were actually just flicking sexual harassment complaints to the Commission. Uh, and one of the recommendations in that report was essentially that WHS regulators start regulating the issue of sexual harassment as a WHS issue. Uh, and that report also echoed the, the, the calls in the Boland report for prescriptive development of code of practices dealing with mental health risks and including sexual harassment as a WHS risk. You'll see in the slide, I've just said that one of the, the acknowledgements that the Commission made was that a recommendation like that would need a cultural and an institutional shift from WHS regulators uh, who were still adjusting to, to how to uh, respond to psychosocial risks uh, in, in a WHS context. So looking at that, we have actually had some development in that urgent call in the Boland report for prescriptive uh, regulation on how employers must manage uh, psychosocial risks in the workplace. Um, it's probably important context too that when, when Boland made that recommendation, it was in the context of what she had heard from smaller businesses. Smaller businesses were des desperately asking for more prescriptive regulation. Um, and more recently, uh, and in the last few weeks, the New South, New South Wales government has released a draft code of practice for managing mental health risks in the workplace. Now, it's really interesting working through. So that, that draft code of practice is in consultation at the moment. Uh, it's published on the website, it's open for comment. I would encourage you to, to have a review. Um, the, the code of practice picks up on, on similar themes that the Safe Work Guideline, which has been around for a couple of years, does, but it probably brings it down a peg. It really, in the consultation materials, it is explained as uh, this code of practice really just mandates minimum requirements. It does not cover any suggested, uh, any suggested or, or best practice type controls. And there is also an acknowledgement that uh, employers will have various resources to manage these issues and deal with these issues, and that very much will be in the regulatory approach to enforcing these laws. Um, <clears throat> the code of practice also picks up a hierarchy, the hierarchy of controls, which is something as WHS practitioners we're all really familiar with. Uh, it's very much ingrained in WHS laws. It was developed over 50 years ago in response to physical risks. The, 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 the materials do acknowledge that there's a lot of criticism of whether, in fact, the hierarchy of controls uh, has any useful application to the management of psychological hazards. And the paper basically says, well, we acknowledge that criticism, you know, and there might be more sophisticated approaches to managing psychosocial risk, but we need a base 
we need a baseline and this is what we've landed on. And it's important that we keep the approach to regulating mental health similar to how we would uh, regulate uh, risk to, to physical health. So a trend that we've observed is that regulators have been working very, very hard, particularly in the context of COVID, but otherwise on developing tools and materials to support uh, employers to manage mental health in the workplace. It's really kind of an education and guidance approach uh, ha has been their attitude. Um, most of the jurisdictional regulators have included mental health as a key focus for all of their strategic plans. Uh, and uh, a lot of uh, regulators have partnered with, you know, academic institutions and industry to, to further de develop tools and, and, um, uh, and research in the area. But there is also this tension with, well, what about the other side? What about when an inspector comes on? What will they be looking at? Uh, how, uh, how, what will the, the regulator approach to enforcement action be? Um, currently, we've seen quite a few prosecutions in that bullying space. So we have seen prosecutions related to risk to psychosocial health or to, to mental health, usually really reserved for the most egregious failings um, and those, those quite high profile individual behaviour uh, type, type issues. Um, one of the key issues for how employers are now being told to manage uh, mental health in the workplace is we need to take a, a job design, um, and we need to plan and manage work having regard to the, the risks and stresses in the workplace. And it, it is a bit more difficult for regulators to regulate that. Uh, we did say last year there was some um, enforcement action arising out of the Banking Royal Commission, so issues about fatigue and overwork. Uh, so regulators have been sending a clear signal that this is something that they, you know, they will be taking enforcement action on. Uh, and in the New South Wales material that's just been released, there is a bit of a tell in there. Um, the, the guidance material basically says different approaches will be adopted. We recognise that. Uh, but there is a broad understanding of hazards and risks and available controls. And including those in this draft code will demonstrate, for example, the state of knowledge of the matter, what a person ought to reasonably know and what might be considered reasonably practicable control measures, which is code for this, this code will also be used as a tool of compliance. It will be led uh, as the standard um, for, for regulators wanting to take enforcement action. Uh, the, the New South Wales regulator has made the comment that many workplaces still continue to rely solely on administrative control to manage risks associated with unacceptable behaviours. That's the sexual harassment, the bullying. Uh, and has said those controls will not meet the Section 19 obligations under the WHS Act. Uh, and has said inspectors, when coming on site, will expect uh, a, a written system which identifies underlying work-related risk factors has made that assessment, that risk-based assessment, so far as is reasonably practicable, and has worked through the hierarchy of controls to implement, uh, where possible, higher-order controls in addition to the administrative controls um, that are in place across most workplaces. Uh, so that will be a continuing area to watch, how, how regulators um, respond to this, this challenge to to improve uh, mental health outcomes at work and, and how law and policymakers uh, approach that project of how do we uh, provide this prescriptive uh, regulation of mental health, uh, which is such a challenge. So I will leave that there. I think it's probably time that we move to some questions because we have had quite a few come through. So Steve, I, I, might, I might start with you. We've had a couple of questions about uh, industrial manslaughter laws uh, in Victoria, but also generally. Um, and one of the questions is, how? what is the risk for a white-collar workplace? What is the risk to directors and officers of a, of a white-collar workplace? And how will these laws apply to serious mental health uh, scenarios, suicide as an example? Is there potential exposure for individuals and companies? Cool, thanks, uh, thanks Nerida. And the answer is, it's it's a certainly conceivable that these laws could be used in circumstances of non-physical risk. I mean, the archetypical example uh, here in Victoria is our, our Cafe Vamp case where uh, a young girl was bullied 
to attempt suicide. She failed on the first attempt. She was bullied again for having not been successful and ultimately took her own life. Um, that was not prosecuted as, as the most serious offence in Victoria at the time. And I think on reflection, there, there might be a view that that was an inadequate approach to the prosecution of that particular matter. And I think, you know, social expectations have really moved on. That sort of case arose again. You know, I think it's entirely conceivable. And again, to make the observation, that is at the far end of the spectrum of, you know, culpability and, uh, you know, quite egregious human-to-human behaviour in the workplace context, but it's entirely conceivable that that could be treated. I must say, and, uh, you know, macabre as, as it is to make this reflection, but over the last couple of years, it's certainly been the case that we've helped a number of clients respond to uh, allegations which were arisen following a worker suicide. A worker's left a, left a note and made allegations of the way in which he or she has been treated at work, sometimes known to the employer, sometimes not, sometimes invisible to the employer. Um, but I, I suppose it's a social reflection that that's a, that's a sort of an increasing element of the way in which health and safety law is moving into, you know, entirely, entirely uncharted territory from pure physical health and safety risk. So I, I, I'm very cautious of having balance here. I don't see every uh, mental injury or even, even, a, even a, you know, a suicide or a mental injury fatality, I suppose. I don't see all of those resulting in an investigation from the regulator or a prosecution decision, or a decision to prosecute for the most serious offences. I mean, plainly, there's a lot of gates to go through, but it's it's absolutely on the cards for the worst sort of behaviour. Thanks, Dave. Uh, Anna, I have a question for you, and it's about working from home arrangements, and there's very much the question on many of our employers' minds, uh, which is, does our legal duty to ensure health and safety of a workplace require us to basically set up a worker with a workplace at work and a workplace at home? What's our requirement uh, to ensure health and safety and, and fund and set up at home offices now? Has that changed in the context of COVID? Generally, no. So putting aside um, so, uh, government directions and similar that require people to work from home, obviously in that case where employers continued those working arrangements you've then got a work from home arrangement. Yes, you do need to take steps to manage safety risks in that work from home arrangement. But going forward, assuming no government directions that mandate work from home arrangements, there's no requirement for employers to have both a, an office workplace and a work from home workplace. But where they do, where they permit or where they encourage work from home, then absolutely they need to take steps to make sure any risks associated with that work from home arrangement are managed to as low as reasonably practicable. And you might, you might imagine that um, community standards and the industry standards will shift over the coming two years. I mean, we've certainly had a lot of clients say, do we have to go out and buy an ergonomic chair for every worker at the moment? I think the position has to be uh, to take a, a more moderate view and certainly on a risk-based view, those who need an ergonomic chair that they don't currently have, you know, look at, look at making an accommodation. But I guess all health and safety law, we're measured against industry practice, aren't we? So it sort of seems that if over the next two and three and four years, business reduces its commercial foothold in the CBD, makes a conscious decision that people are going to be working from home as part of their role, might recruit people on that basis. I can just see, and you know, as you say, that there'll be a kind of a shift of community standards to kind of normalise those sorts of requirements. But I think employers can be, you know, risk-weighted, can't they, on, on what they do now compared to what they might do in the future. Yeah, that's right. And, and as you say, Steve, if what we're talking about is a mandated work-from-home arrangement or some form of structured work-from-home arrangement, then you would expect that quite quickly um, expectation or the assessment of what's practicable in those circumstances will change. Thanks, Anna. Uh, Aaron, I have a question for you. It's an interesting question, but it's you've touched upon that point, which is, you know, this really is a unique situation where employers now are seen as having this public health role and these obligations which are, arise out of, you know, a, a community virus. Uh, and, and someone has raised the issue, you know, we had a similar issue arise, a question of public health during the bushfires. Do you expect to see that there will be prosecutions arising out of these types of issues where employers are seen as having a, you know, a role to manage risks that aren't inherently connected to the workplace? 
Uh, I don't see the legal principles changing in any respect in that regard. I think that um, the point that I tried to raise earlier was that employers have the capacity to put in place controls to try and, in some sense, manage you know um, community risks associated with COVID nineteen. So I don't see uh, regulators getting particularly interested in you know trying to extend any, any any legal duties placed on employers to sort of generally protect the community. Um, the work health and safety laws are clearly associated with protecting sort of people, employees and other persons who are impacted by activities at the workplace or work activities. Uh, so I think, you know, the ambit of legal duties will remain in that sort of sphere. Um, but it brings in interesting concepts of, uh, you know, people's aversion to things like public transport and whether employers might have a legal responsibility associated with, uh, you know, uh, employees um, catching public transport and the risks associated with that, for example, Nerida. Um, and, and maybe I, I might just make an observation on that. Um, once again, the transportation to work is not in and of itself the, the workplace, nor is it uh, a work activity at that point in time. So again, I don't see the legal duties under the work health and safety regime and regulators getting excited about prosecuting employers necessarily because uh, there might be that particular risk for employees, um, even though certain employees may raise some aversion to catching public transport. What would be interesting, though, of course, is if uh, employers are, are sending employees uh, away um, on work conferences or um, to particular um, locations and communities where it's been identified maybe there's higher risk and people are catching public transport during those trips away. Um, we might then see a closer connection to the duties established under the WHS regimes. Um, and so oh, that's where we're more likely to probably see a regulator getting interested uh, in those sort of fringe activities. Um, but of course, let's not forget, of course, um, transportation to and from in, in to and from work in and of itself is uh, something that under some workers' comp regimes is, is a no, part of a no-fault scheme. So I think um, it'll continue to sit there. Yeah, that's right. It's probably worth noting too that some jurisdictions have passed uh, kind of attributed uh, liability provisions for frontline workers who, who were diagnosed with COVID to, to overcome some of those issues. Um, we are getting close to the end, so I, I'd be really keen to just ask one more question, which is uh, we predicted 2020 so well. So what, what's next? What for 2021 do we think? Play. I was going to say hopefully let's talk about COVID, but but I actually think that there'll be equal discussion of COVID because as you know Aaron rightly says the risk for all of our jurisdictions now and Victoria has been through the second wave. The risk is of course the third wave and uh, the concern of you know managing compliance at workplaces or even across society. Uh, vaccine news might arrive by the end of this year, but vaccine in my arm might not arrive until June, July, or August next year. So there's a big gap between those two things. And I think that is, in all the health and safety matters I've been involved with, complacency has played at least some part. People who knew of a risk once and were concerned about it because it didn't eventuate, they sort of got less concerned over time until they became, you know, utterly complacent about that risk. And I, I think that's the challenge for employers will be to, you know, normalise the sorts of things that Aaron and Anna have spoken about in the, fact, in the, in the light of, you know, potential vaccination, but that's going to be quite some time away. So this, this little period coming up is a period of is a period of risk. I think that's right, Steve. I think what we will see as time goes by is just less tolerance also from our inspectorate. I think there's mm -hmm. been, in my experience, there's been you know a lot of collaboration and a lot of not necessarily tolerance, but you know, sort of guidance and uh, let's sort of work together. And I think um, that's a really good approach when it comes to industry and regulators. Uh, but I imagine over time, you know, if businesses, you know, are sort of not taking the right steps to manage the issues that we've talked about today, then inspectors might then have no choice but to sort of escalate their enforcement functions. Yeah. Got one minute, Anna. I agree. I think with all of that, you know, as Steve said, this is an ongoing issue. Um, that's, the prospect of a vac vaccine is still quite speculative and any timing connected with that is still quite speculative. And as both Steve and Aaron said, this is um, an area 
of safety that needs to be managed on an ongoing basis and that will almost certainly attract ongoing attention from the regulator and from those who interact with the regulator, so unions and other members of the workforce. So it's not going away and it's something that all employers need to watch and be very, um, very much prepared to deal with on an ongoing basis. Thanks very much, everybody. Uh, please let us know if you would like the slides, just shoot one of us an email, but we really appreciate you uh, putting aside an hour to discuss WHS with us. We'll see you at the next one. Thanks. That's great. Thanks, Narada. Thanks all.